0: we all know that children and youth can be at risk for abuse and harm anywhere we also know that children can be put at risk for harm when churches and organizations fail to properly develop and enforce adequate policies to protect the children and youth in their programs the implementation and consistent adherence to a thorough screening process and the consistent enforcement of strict supervision standards are going to protect the children and youth participating in programs at Cornerstone. These policies minimize Okay, is that better? Should I start again? Are we good? All right. Okay, these policies minimize the potential for situations where abuse is possible and will also protect the church if there are any investigations due to allegations of abuse or risk leading to abuse if those are made. So, for some background information, There we go. According to Statistics Canada, 30% of Canadians have reported experiencing physical or sexual abuse as a child. And of course, we all know that abuse in any form, but especially sexual abuse, is always underreported. So probably that number is actually higher. The Canadian Red Cross states that 85% of child sexual abuse victims know their abuser. And Statistics Canada reports that 25% of violence against a child is committed by a family member perhaps of importance and particular interest for us here at cornerstone is the fact that statistically speaking violence rates against children both by family and non-family members are actually twice as high in smaller and rural communities than they are in larger cities so because of the sad reality of child abuse in our society the long-lasting trauma it creates and the realization that children can be put at risk for harm when churches don't establish and follow adequate screening and supervision standards. Cornerstone is committed to following a careful screening process and implementing strict standards for the supervision of all children's and youth programs. So we created and implemented our safe church action plan last year after many months of research and work in collaboration with Dan and Stacey and we can now confidently say that it meets industry standards and it has the approval of the church leadership this is now mandatory training for all cornerstone staff and volunteers who help with the children's and youth programs and if someone who meets those criteria isn't here today then we'll follow up with them and provide that training for them we've also created summaries for each of the children's and youth programs that contain all of the information so this is the whole safe church action plan document as you can see it is not insignificant in size it's full of information that's good information and important information for us to all know and be aware of but I understand that that could be a bit daunting for you to have to flip through so we've created these summaries for each of the specific children's and youth programs and so I've pulled out in point form the points that are relevant for your program So we have one for nursery one for children's church one for youth one for kids midweek programs those are available at the back and we do ask at the end that you take one home with you for whichever program that you volunteer with and make sure that you read it okay so before we get started with the rest I wanted to there we go go over our roles and definitions so hopefully by now these are familiar to everyone just so everyone's on the same page and we're all clear The ministry coordinators are responsible for overseeing their programs curriculum and volunteers and scheduling, and also for ensuring that their programs, procedures and volunteers meet the standards in our Safe Church Action Plan. The children's church floater is an adult volunteer who will remain in the hall between the children's church classrooms and the nursery, or who may come up to the lobby as long as they also periodically go down that hall and they can check in on the classes this person will help to ensure that the classrooms are properly staffed by checking with the teachers at the beginning of children's church and at least once or twice more during the class time and they are there to provide support to the volunteers as needed the safe church action plan administrator is responsible for the development implementation and enforcement of the safe church action plan policies and procedures and I provide support to the ministry coordinators to ensure the proper screening and And supervision for all of their programs I am responsible also for reviewing the policy each year and for being the resource person to you guys the ministry coordinators and the volunteers so if you ever you have a situation where you're not sure what is the correct way to approach it or you're not sure what should have happened you can easily come find me and if it's something that can be found easily in the in the policy I'll point that out to you we'll go over that if it's something that maybe I need to take up to Dan and Stacy and we need to have a conversation about what should we do in this situation we'll do that and then we'll get back to you so we have um, we are committed to implementing a thorough screening process for all staff and volunteers that are helping with children and youth here at Cornerstone this comprehensive screening process is an important part of how we safeguard and protect the children and youth participating in our programs I'm just going to briefly list the steps I won't be going into depth in detail but that is available in the safe church action plan that you can look through later if you would like first we have a three-month waiting period before applicants are able to volunteer with children and youth this is to deter individuals who are looking for easy access to potential victims and also it gives us in the congregation and in the church leadership time and opportunity to get to know these individuals a little bit before we Consider allowing them to volunteer with our children and youth each applicant must complete a volunteer application form applicants will read and agree to adhere to our safe church action plan policy and to do that this is a, a large document they are able to just read through the summary for their program that's fine you will complete a level three police records check for the vulnerable sector and that's completed before you are going to be allowed to volunteer with children and youth, that has to be done specifically for Cornerstone. So, if you've already completed one for another organization or your kids' school or hockey, unfortunately, we do require that you do um, complete one just for Cornerstone, and that has to be done again every three years. Applicants will have a brief interview and we'll check with two references for each applicant. There'll be mandatory training on the Safe Church Action Plan that will be provided annually, which is today and there will be program specific training that will be provided by the ministry coordinators for their program considering uh, regarding their curriculum their procedures and policies etc and then lastly the cornerstone will retain records for all documents involved in the screening process attendance records and any reports submitted okay so right now we're going to break down into our small group discussion time so you have Um, a copy of the training manual in your row and then a list of questions and there's going to be on the question sheet you are assigned a small particular section for your group so we are asking for you and your group to just review those sections and discuss them and then if you can briefly summarize the main points or the main idea of that section and then you guys will Present a brief summary of four minutes or less to everyone else so then that way everyone gets a quick overview of the different policy points so we're gonna have about 10 minutes for you guys to, to read through that and discuss that and come up with your points that you're gonna present and then we will begin our discussions. all right everyone we're gonna have to wrap up our discussion time and get ready for our presentations even if you haven't finished yet We'll, we'll make sure that the points are covered. So when you do your presentations, try to make sure that you cover the questions that you had, the sections that you had, and um, try to briefly summarize the main points and ideas of your sections. Everyone please listen, um, so that we can all learn from each other. We'll have to keep the presentations to four minutes or less. I don't know, if Dan, if you want to set a timer. And, um, We're going to go in the order of your group number. So that way you can be prepared. All right. So group number one.
1: All right. We had chapter two, um, sections one to six. We spent most of our time on the first two points, so we didn't really get it through, but in quick summary, first point we had was uh, the two leader rule. Um, again, it comes down to something very simple. Never one adult by themselves in kids in a classroom with kids never a situation where an adult can think that they have time with kids alone. So if there's a floater around that covers it. The floater has to come by regularly. This blends in with section 2.2, with the open door policy with the floater again. We're teaching as a classroom, and there shouldn't be a time when I can think I'm in a room by themselves without a chance for an adult to come by and see me what I'm doing with the kids, essentially is what it is. So there has to be another adult in there. The adult can't be my wife has to be a non-related person. In our Sunday school classes, we use a volunteer who's older than uh, the kids there. That's uh, the next policy, we'll get to that. Um, And again, it comes down to one of the sentences here. It says, it is important to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. So it's what you have to do has to be super vigilant of this chance that um, somebody else could say, well, your adult was in there and nobody knows what that adult was doing. The counter argument to that would be, well, the adult was in there, but the adult didn't know when the floater was going to walk by, so the window is always open, or the door is always open. The floater has to be in the hall so that they can come by and check randomly to see what we're doing, just to make sure that what we're doing is appropriate at all times. The next one is, uh, again, uh, staffing guidelines. Staffing guidelines simply deals with how many staff has to be present with the age group. So with kindergartens or nursery, it has to be one to four. A little bit older, it's one to six, and with the kids in uh, that I teach, it's one to nine. So ratios there. Um, it's important again, and I guess with, with these things here, it's always a temporary time. If somebody has to go to the bathroom, a we need to get the parents to get the kids to go pee before church. That way they don't have to go to the bathroom during Sunday school. So, and uh, in the where event that it does, then the door is open, and that's where we make use of the floater. Um, family protection, spouses work well together, but it doesn't count as far as the different unrelated adults. So it's wonderful if your wife or husband wants to be there and help you teach, you still need an unrelated adult supervisor. Um, age leader considerations, this basically covers who's considered old enough to be a teacher, and there has to be an age gap between the students and the teacher. Um, youth leaders have to be at least three years older than the group of youth they're leading, and it goes on to talk about that. Um, staff and volunteer de- identification. We have to have a name tag on with says what, are, so what we who we are and what we're doing, and that basically takes me to the end of my uh, section.
0: Okay, so group number two, excellent, Steve. I did want to just go over the floater as well. That it's yes, it's important for um, an extra adult there to be a presence so that we avoid any sense of impropriety, as you said, but also the floater is there to support you. So if you have a child who is upset or who got hurt, and you need to go get a parent, or if you have a child who urgently needs to use a the bathroom, then then you can make use of the floater that way. So it's it's um, the, the, the two different roles that that floater um, meets. All right, so group number two was also supervision guidelines. Is there anyone from that group who is, that's for next one. Is anyone from that group who is ready to present? Because they were different sections. Okay, I'll go over it quickly. So the supervision guidelines in the, the manual is, is a fairly big section because we have different um, points that we need to cover. The main points are we need to have the children uh, registered properly at the beginning of the fall program. So for children's church or nursery or youth or midweek, Um, we need to be taking attendance in our morning services that needs to be the kids that are present as well as the volunteers that are present and that's a permanent record nursery and Kinder to grade one class the parent the kids have to be signed in by their parent and also be signed in by their parent they are not able to be picked up by another family member or a visiting aunt or uncle or grandparent or cousin that just eliminates um, the The situations where you might not be familiar with this person and maybe yeah this this person comes to you and says hey I'm here to pick up Jack but you're not really familiar with them so this is our fallback we're only allowed to release these kids of this age to their parents and they are indicated on their registration forms washroom guidelines um, as a general rule for nursery And for kids that are kind of toilet training, the parents need to take their kids to the bathroom right before the class time. And then if there is a a child who does need to use the bathroom, our guidelines are that we're just gonna say adult females are going to be the ones who are gonna be assisting any little ones in the bathroom. And a main main, um, point is just to leave the washroom door open in the manual, it specifies for little kids who actually physically need help in the washroom stall, you're able to go in there, but leave the stall door open. If it's a kid who just needs help washing the hands or needs you to help um, you know, pull their shirt up or something, then you can go and assist them, but you stay out in the washroom while they're in the stall. And for older kids, even kids that are old enough that they don't need help, we need our volunteers to go with them pop your head into the washroom facility just to take a check and see who's present and then wait outside. You don't need to assist them in any way. You don't need to have a door open. It's just so that you are aware of the situation that you were putting that child in and then also so they know that you're there if for some reason they need help. Mobile devices are to be turned off or put away when you're using the bathroom so there's no potential for you to be accidentally recording any images or anything while you're in there. And then... We've covered that for elementary age yeah you check in the bathroom and you wait outside in the hall we need to have parent permission before you begin any personal ministry or counseling for special events they need to be pre-approved by the ministry coordinator you need to sign have the parents fill in a waiver form and you need to have a minimum of two leaders overnight events the staffing ratio is smaller one to five if there are female children participating or youth then you need to have at least one female leader who is an adult. And then also in that situation, you would have volunteers that are assigned specific groups of children just to help manage who is supervising who. All right, group three, nursery. Our topic is about
2: nursery procedures. So on here, Um, young helpers that are 11 or 12 years old may also volunteer in the nursery, but do not count towards appropriate staffing ratios. At least one volunteer is to be an adult female volunteer. It is never acceptable to compromise child's protection due to volunteer shortage. People other than parents or guardians in the nursery volunteers or staff are not to enter the nursery. What? Oh, okay. Um, maintain one adult per four children
0: minimum staff. Just some other points. Um, Authorized adult or parent to pick up their child. Child must be signed in or signed out, as we've of overlapped the volunteer for nursery we, we had a discussion last year about how to do this and we settled on that we're going to have in the nursery we're going to have you ask the young volunteer the young helper come to the sanctuary find the parent and take their kid okay and diapering we are not expecting our cornerstone volunteers to change a diaper so even if outside of church you've changed this kid's diaper before when we're here when you're in this role don't volunteers don't change diapers. Okay. All right. Second group for nursery.
3: That was us. So our section was on proper display of affection and appropriate behaviors. It looks correct. So, in summary, in everything that that lists, um, the real key point there is that positive touch is essential to development. So, it's okay to touch as long as your touch is. Appropriate and when deciding what's appropriate. It's important to consider the development of the child So for nursery, we're often dealing with babies. It's fine to carry them and snuggle them if they're sad And you need to make a judgment call at what point is that kid able to walk then you don't really need to pick them up and What kind of touching you're having so patting them on the head is fine touching them on the shoulder to direct their attention or to console them is fine and as a general rule, anything covered by a bathing suit is off limits all the time. There's no reason that you should be that close or be touching in that way. So taking a hand, patting a head, holding a child who's upset is okay. Some key things that are always inappropriate, coaching, coaxing a child to give kisses. You should never be doing that. If they volunteer a hug, it's fine to accept it. Um, yeah, and always consider what's developmentally appropriate. For a lot of the other ages, these kids will be A lot older, and they'll make a lot of those judgment calls on their own whether they want to give a hug or a high five. Um, Yeah, that's
0: it. Great, thank you. So, group number five Boys Club, Seoul Boys Club volunteer.
4: Okay, so the sections um, that I'm reviewing are proper discipline and difficult situations. And so this applies to everyone, not just midweek or anything like that. Um, So the understanding is that healthy discipline helps children develop self-control, learn responsible behavior, and they can actually participate appropriately in the program. And so they're appropriate. Discipline procedures and then unacceptable ones. So, not just inappropriate, but actually unacceptable. Um, So, some of the appropriate ones you know, praise, um, getting down to the child's eye level. I know I try to do that, but I forget sometimes. So, um, it's something that uh, maybe is not the first one. You use a firm, gentle voice, redirecting negative behavior. Um, You can use a gentle touch on the shoulder and help talk through the problem, explain what's not acceptable and offer a positive alternative. And then you could use age appropriate timeouts if you need to uh, from the activities. So the suggestion is maybe one minute per per year of age. And then you can discuss it if necessary with the parents. Unacceptable ones, corporal punishment of any kind, physical restraining the children except if you're trying to prevent them harm either to themselves or someone else. Raising your voice unless you're doing it to be heard. Using negative, hurtful, or derogatory comments, which sometimes you can say and not really realize that it's negative or hurtful, uh, or embarrassing or shaming the child, or isolating or excluding them from the group. So that would be obviously separate from a timeout that they know is uh, coming. So the thing is, you can do these appropriate discipline procedures, and it might not work. So what if you do? What do you do if it doesn't work? Uh, basically you have to ask another volunteer or the floater if it's children's church to go and find the parent or guardian so uh dan joined me briefly and we were ch- talking about how for the midweek um we don't always have that information easily available so we should make sure that the ministry coordinators have that information and provide it to the people who are there and obviously the sign in i think there are places for people to put phone numbers but If it's like the eighth week they might not write their phone number for the eighth time so Um, but anyway the idea is someone accesses or finds the parent or guardian then you ask the parent or guardian to remove their child or youth from the class or activity so you're not the one removing them and then you explain why they're being asked to leave but you also state that the child is welcome to return once they're able to participate in a more cooperative manner and then like Uh, When you're trying to do the, the healthy discipline in the first place, don't shame or embarrass the child or the parent or guardian.
0: Thank you. Okay, group number six, board slash youth.
5: So we had understanding child abuse, essentially just that there are four types, physical harm or injury, emotional harm, sexual abuse or exploitation, or negligent treatment. Um, There were some details underneath each of those categories of abuse, most of them are common sense, and one of our questions was was there anything new that came up um, in these descriptors or definitions, and not really. So under physical abuse, using physical force or action that could result or has resulted in injury to the child. That can include just being negligent such that um, there is some physical harm to the child. Um, under emotional abuse, uh, in part it talks about a pattern of behavior, but really if you read about the um, what would qualify as emotional abuse acting or failing to act in ways that could have a serious behavioral or emotional mental um, impact on the child's health, um, that includes things like placing um, unreasonable demands on a child or expecting them to, just expecting them to be capable of something beyond their capacity. So verbal threats against them, social isolation, intimidating, criticizing, belittling, insulting, and rejecting. So even though that was the part we discussed, even though it does talk about a pattern of abuse, one strong verbal threat I think would be enough to qualify as abuse in that case, whether it's a pattern or not. Um, in sexual abuse, any sexual exploitation or treatment of a child or youth, that any sexual activity without consent is criminal offense regardless of age, but that at 16 years of age, they are able to give consent, unless it's in a case where um, someone is in a place of authority or trust, which would include any of our programs. Um, the last piece, there's three more bullet points about children and youth are legally protected from sexual abuse. So that kind of leads more to the supervision that we provide within our programs that we ensure that they are protected from. um, Even sexual violence doesn't include physical contact. For example, being forced to look at uh, sexual parts of another person's body, being asked intrusive questions or comments made about their body would qualify under that. So even if that's not something you're personally involved in doing, If we're in the environment to protect the children, you have to be aware that you are protecting them from anybody who might be making those types of comments or um, actions. The last um, piece of abuse or last um, type of abuse would be negligence or negligent treatment. And that's the failure to care or provide for the child or to fail to adequately supervise or protect the child.
0: Thank you, okay, that's great. So we have group seven, youth indicators of child abuse.
6: Yeah, so um, the, the first thing that we noticed with physical abuse, I think everybody knows like if someone's being physically abused, sometimes you see it bruising, whatever. And that, that's not only it, if you look at the bottom, there's also like they might be doing self-harming or uh, hostile behavior or fear. So that there's also behavioral things there that you might see from if they're physically abused. And a lot of the time, like people aren't dumb. If they're gonna physically abuse kids, they're not gonna do it in places that you're gonna see. So you might you might notice the the behavior more than the the scars or bruising. So pay attention for that. Uh, the next thing is emotional abuse, and I mean, like it's it's basically it's it's negative behavior. It's kind of common sense. Like they depression, self harming again, eating disorders, and so especially if you're dealing with with youth like I am or, or the older. The older kids some of this stuff is just how teenagers behave so i think it a, a lot of it's going to be like a, a shift in in like well last week this kid was awesome and they were super happy and now now they're depressed and now and now like and, and they're just sliding downwards then pay attention to that uh and then sexual abuse again a lot of the a lot of the same stuff so you kind of got to pay attention to what's difference and and i mean if if you notice any of these things, that, that should shoot up a flag is really the point. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's all there. You should definitely read them. And then the last one, I guess there's another slide, was uh, neglect. And this isn't something that I really thought about, but it's 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 things like failure to thrive, inappropriate dress for the climate, chronic hunger, depression, So, and and I mean, like poor hygiene. So again, this could be any teenage boy has (laughs) terrible hygiene and they're always hungry and they don't wear the right clothes. But pay attention to that. If it's like, like, like one of my kids, they run hot. Like Hudson never wants to wear his shoes. He'd probably wear shorts and a t-shirt all year long. That would be his dream. And we have to force that kid into a coat. Or there's, but like if, if last winter, well, this kid had a coat every day. And now they have nothing and they're wearing shoes with holes in it. Like, pay attention to that stuff. I think that's all of our things.
0: Thank you. That was great. And I really like that you guys pointed out that look for changes. Because, yes, some of these behaviors, I mean, some, some kids and some teens do fall into a depression, just like some adults do. It's not necessarily a sign that, that there's something that we should be worried about beyond just being worried for their mental health and emotional well-being but if we look for these changes and sudden changes in their behavior someone was really engaged and happy and outgoing and then all of a sudden you start to notice that they're withdrawn and they're shy they don't want to be um really active and participating or they're kind of you know hunched over a little bit and maybe they're dressed completely differently especially for girls that that could be a red flag that if they dress in a certain way, like full of personality, and you know, they kind of have their sense of style, and then all of a sudden they start dressing in really oversized, baggy clothes. They're trying to hide and cover their bodies. Again, that's not a sign that something actually did happen, but as Nathan said, it's a flag. Pay attention, and it's a cause for us to kind of step in and just express concern for the child. All right, so we have um, next group, uh, Children's Church, Group 8.
7: Our section was on uh, understanding disclosure, which kind of ties in a little bit uh, with what Nathan said. Um, So most often, um, children won't disclose until after an extended period of abuse, or even more so after the abuse has ended. After the abuse has ended. Um, And there'll be a lot of inconsistencies in the facts. So they may timing may be different um, the people may be different the duration of the abuse at, and we have to understand that that can be due to trauma or fear and not because not to not believe the child even if the facts don't make sense um, they may alter them on purpose or in error uh, they may say it happened to a friend of theirs they may say that somebody abused him but not the actual person that did um, so there's a lot of subtle signs to look for. Um, they, and then a big thing is they may show nonverbal signs like Nathan just reviewed. Um, in the section that we read, they didn't actually um, lay them out. I mean, yours were more specific to teens, but I've, I've seen a lot of this um, with, uh, in my own life growing up. Um, and a child will want to tell but they're really afraid. Uh, They're afraid that they won't be uh, believed. They are not too sure who they can trust because they've already been abused by somebody that they did trust. They may be afraid that it'll break up a family or a family friendship, um, and they don't want to get a family member or or a friend in trouble. Um, They may be afraid, um, they may be in denial of what happened or think that that's normal behavior within those circumstances. They may be very embarrassed. And um, they may hint at the abuse to a friend or a trusted adult. Often they'll tell a teacher, somebody further removed. And that doesn't just happen. Like That's not just a talk. I think all of this isn't, and I wasn't here last year for this, but not just about abuse that might happen here, but about reporting abuse that we've got to watch Um, And in my experience, it it usually is their friends know.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Okay, our last group, Group 9, Girls Club.
8: So we looked at a few different sections with kind of tie into all of these. So when it comes to dealing with the inappropriate behavior and reporting the behavior and talking about injuries, what do we do with all of that? So when we're talking about inappropriate conduct um, allegedly by the volunteers um, and the people who are dealing with our children, we are to quietly remove the volunteer from the situation And to then report to our ministry coordinator and also to our lead pastor so that we can deal with the situation. Um, So next we're talking about accidents and reporting them. So there's kind of like common sense you go through different stages. Child comes to you, they've got a cut on their finger. They just need a Band-Aid. You don't really, I don't think we need to report at that point. But one question that our group did have is if we have to open a first aid kit, do we have to report it at that point? Um, Next is if the injury is a little bit more serious, um, you then need to look at if you need to call 911. You also need to ensure the safety of the child or children involved. Um, You need to get in touch with the children's parents. Um, You also need to, in that situation, do we need to separate the children who are involved in the incident and remove the rest of them From everyone else so you can deal with the situation quietly should you cancel and have parents come and pick their children up earlier so you can continue to help the child or children involved in the situation after ensuring the safety of the child or children involved you need to complete an accident report um, so that we can submit it to our ministry coordinator and also to the lead pastor so that they're aware of what's happening and they can help us deal with the situation accordingly. Um, Next is reporting procedures and staff volunteer inappropriate conduct. So again, this is if you notice something that is not how you would view um, um, the appropriate way to deal with children, Uh, There's a few things that we look at like losing your temper, raising your voice angrily, shaming, belittling the child, acting physically aggressive or threatening with the child, inappropriate or unsafely isolating the child, touching the child inappropriately or with too much familiarity or in a romantic manner or otherwise conducting themselves in a manner not in keeping with the behavior guidelines outlined in this policy. So your first step is to immediately ask and to stop your second step is to report the inappropriate conduct next you want to inform the ministry coordinator then you want to submit a report of inappropriate conduct and then from there the ministry coordinator is not available then you would get in touch with the lead pastor so all of these steps all of this section that we're touching on is super important for us as leaders and volunteers to know so that way when and never it like hopefully never but if we're ever in the situation we know what we need to do so reporting procedures um, every person is required by law to make a report immediately um, to CAS so Children's Aid Society so if you're noticing um, like in what Nathan was talking about if you're noticing changes in behavior if you're seeing abuse if you're um, suspecting even um, there's nothing stopping you and we are required to make sure that we're making that phone call to ensure the child's safety um, you don't need to be hundred percent certain in any case you just if there is a suspe- suspicion there that is motivation enough um, if you witness it um, occurring or you have been informed um, it is our job to intervene to protect the children Um, if you do happen to see it physically, right? You don't want to leave the abuser with the child, so try and separate them. Remove the child from the situation and make that report. Um, Cornerstone requires that you make a report if you suspect abuse and the child is under the age of 18. Complete a report of possible child abuse and submit to the lead pastor. And from there, again, this is all stuff that's in here for you guys to read over. And I feel it's very important for us to know.
0: Thank you, April. That's great. So just as a follow-up to that, I wanted to show you what the forms looked like. This is a report of accident or injury. You fill in your name and the date at the top, capture and complete as much information as you can. Maybe not all of the questions on the sheet are relevant to that specific situation. That's fine. Just complete it as much as you can. And then you submit it to your ministry coordinator at uh, once you've completed this information. and try to do that as quickly as possible. Perhaps there is something that we need to know that maybe we need to change how we do things or change the physical environment that that was happening in so that we prevent um, future accidents or injuries from happening like that. This is the report of inappropriate conduct. All the forms are in the filing cabinet in Stacy's office, in the office. As, uh, also with the summaries, with the hard copies of the manuals, that's all there. I'm sure we could pop in afterwards if you wanted to see. Um, it's in a red folder, I believe. That's labeled "Safe Church Action Plan." I think it's in the second drawer. Report of inappropriate conduct. Please fill in your name and the date at the top. Complete it as as much as you can. Capture as much information as you can. So this could be if you saw something that was inappropriate, or if someone told you something that was inappropriate that happened that they saw or that happened to them, or even if you just think something happened okay this isn't this is not like you're reporting someone for abusing a child this is hey I'm not sure about the situation I'm uncomfortable with it maybe someone needs to look into it again fill in as much information as you can and hand that into the Ministry Coordinator this is the report of possible child abuse again name and date at the top For this one, please do the best that you can to capture as much information as you can. For um, the youth or the child that was a victim, we need first and last names. For any other children that were present or people that might be witnesses, first and last names, we can follow up with them. Please use exact quotes from the children or youth um, as much as you can. On the back of this form, there are blank body figures here. I call them body charts. There's a side that says front and a side that says back. This is for you to indicate on these forms the areas that you saw indicators, physical indicators of possible abuse or neglect. Or you could have the child point it out. If the child is telling you something, you're like, hmm, can you show me on this, like where that happened and, and where you were touched or, or where, where this body part got hurt? And then they can point and then you can mark that on. It's just for us to be as thorough as we can in gathering the information so that we can hand that off to CIS and they can carry that on. Okay? And then you hand this in to the lead pastor. All right. So these are your legal requirements. Um, April got into them a little bit, but we'll go over them because they are really important. So if you, as an adult, saw the abuse, had someone disclose to you the abuse, Or you think a child is being abused or will be abused then you are required to make a report to the Children's Aid Society of Ottawa you do not need to be certain of the facts in order to make that report you don't need to wait and gather more information or confer with someone else or wait um, and check again with the kid it's just you are making a report that you think there's a kid who needs protection And then they will do the investigating. You do not need to rely on anyone else to make that report for you. So you, as a volunteer leader, are not to come to me or Dan or Nathan or Grace or Shannon or the ministry coordinator and say, hey, this happened or I heard this or I saw this. I think that we need to call Children's Aid Society. Can you do that? It is your responsibility. If you are kind of the contact person, you're the person who has that suspicion or has that information, then that is your responsibility. No one is able to prevent you from making a report to Children's Aid Society if you have a genuine uh, worry that there's a child who might be in need of protection. So when responding to a child who is disclosing abuse, please remember that victims of abuse can suffer subsequent trauma when they are not believed or when nothing is done to stop their abuser. A child may or may not disclose the abuse right away. They might not tell you all the facts about their abuse and they might not remember and disclose the facts in the correct chronological order in which they occurred. And as Penny pointed out, that's not a sign that they're making it up. It's just how fear and trauma Works on the brain remember that the child does not have the power in an abusive situation so this is what we ask you to do stay calm control your personal reaction to the news show concern but do not express feelings of shock or disbelief or denial or anything that they can misunderstand as you not believing them take them seriously and believe the child Tell the child that what happened was not their fault. Acknowledge what they've experienced and what they're feeling. Comfort them, try to ensure their safety. Do not interview or question a child in depth or ask for specific details. Be careful that you don't suggest words for the child to use to describe what happened, but allow the child to describe what he or she experienced in his or her own words, and record those exact quotes when you can. I know especially with some younger kids they don't have the vocabulary or they don't have the understanding or maybe they have kind of like pet names for body parts so it's not our place to to interject oh so you mean this happened oh so that means that that person did that to you just allow them to use their own words and then write those down and then when we when we call in cis we have a record of exactly what the child said and it is up to those trained professionals then to interview the child that is not your job that's an excellent point okay so she was saying that I'm just going to repeat it for our our video here that even though the onus is on you as a person who has received that disclosure or witnessed the situation that that is your personal responsibility to call CIS in just the realization that that's a difficult call and a difficult situation and you are probably like shocked or stunned or really upset as well, and so it's perfectly fine to call in either a ministry coordinator or Dan or someone from the church leadership, just to be a support to you as you're in the, in that situation, making that call to CIS. And so that's a great point. And yes, as Penny said, um, we shouldn't worry about calling CIS. And I think I read there's I I forget what the actual number is, in, but it's a high percentages of the cases that CIS is called for. Where they close investigation because it's it's unmerited or it's not severe enough to warrant any further action and that's fine just you're only reporting that you are concerned for the welfare of this child and then just leave it to the professionals who are trained and well-trained and practiced at doing this oh okay shannon
9: and I think I would just like to draw attention that sometimes using common sense and, and maybe getting to know the family a little bit, if I think we actually have any kids that come to our programs that would, in my assessment, fit into this kind of category. But the amount of pain and hurt that my husband and I felt in those situations is, uh, I mean, obviously, it's still with me. And as great as CAS are at doing their jobs, um, it it really can absolutely rip a family apart. Um, like Katie's here today, and she can attest to this, and I'm okay talking about it with her here because we've talked about it a lot as a family. But I think my concern kind of more comes from the neglect and emotional side. And uh, if say a child comes, you know, one time to Girls Club, I didn't have supper before I came. Don't call CAS. It may be that the child was running late, and the parent had said, "You need to eat. You need to eat," and they didn't eat. They come without shoes, well, you know, or a coat. We use natural consequences. You left your coat somewhere, it's in the lost and found box, I'm gonna drop you off, you have to go find your coat. Um, kind of those things, right? Use your common sense. Um, I'll share willingly, we just had a call from the school a couple weeks ago, Katie had wrote in note, I wanna kill myself. We got a call, CAS is involved now, actively in our lives. So I guess, yeah, in our current community we have it. <laughs> um, police are involved. We've all talked to Katie, she has no suicide ideations. You know what it was? A friend of hers didn't want to work with her on something, it was girl drama, that's it, you don't want to be my friend, I just want to kill myself. There's a really big difference. However, now we're dealing with social workers, we're dealing with CAS, we're dealing with police. So sometimes use the common sense, never hesitate to call. When you do call it in, you are reporting it by name to CAS, but when they speak to the family about it, you're anonymous. So don't let that prevent you from um, reporting. I find in many cases, we've been able to pinpoint exactly who it was that called in without knowing their name. So, but don't don't prevent that from letting you call it in, right, I mean, if we're calling in something for Girls Club, they know there's only three of us leaders, so it was one of us who did it. Chances are, we just will never see that kid back in our program. That's what will happen.
0: Uh, Do not question for specifics, and yet there's pictures Requiring specifics here. It's a fine line between giving the child or the youth the opportunity to, and the safe space, say, okay, I'm concerned about you, or I hear what you're saying, or I've seen this happen. Giving them a safe space and opportunity to come to you as a trusted adult and say, okay, this is what happened to me. You might be the only person that they might crack open that door with, but we want to be careful that we're not professionally trained investigators. We're not, you know, we don't have that practice and that that training, and we don't ever want to plant seeds in kids' heads. Sometimes kids come out with things that to someone else sounds sounds different than what they actually mean. So it is a fine line of we're not pushing for information, we're not planting seeds and and putting words in their mouths, we're not changing their stories in any way or altering it. We're not even even if what they actually describe to you is actual whatever it is, don't give them that word. We just want to capture their own information in from their own words and then if they are able to so you are to mark on those body charts what you saw or what you witnessed or what you think you saw if the child is actively coming to you and trusting you and disclosing to you then you can have that opportunity to just ask general open-ended questions don't like i wouldn't say okay so you were sexually abused exactly what got put where okay but we would say something like okay so i hear what you're saying can you just point to this picture and, and point where you were touched? Something that would be general and open-ended and the, co- the child or the youth can then step into that question and then feel free, if they're comfortable, to um, disclose those details to you. They might, not, they might just kind of back up and say, oh, no, no, or they just might not want to take that step with you, and that's fine. But I think we do want to give them the opportunity if they are showing trust in you and they've kind of opened that door or if you open that door by saying hey sally you know um, i've i've seen some things and I'm, and I'm concerned about you can you tell me about this you're not going to say hey i look what i see what looks like scars were you cut or you know did you get in in a fight um i think hopefully we never have this happen, and we are never in a situation where we are asking our kids these questions. But I think just being aware of giving them that space and opportunity to disclose to you if they're comfortable and if they're able to without pushing them and without um, kind of putting and interjecting our own words and our own vocabulary and our own information into their story. Because it might not be true. It might not be what they actually experienced. Or it might be, but that's not up to us to ascertain. Yes, Marcia.
3: Another ambiguity.
5: Thank you for
9: the word, Sharon. Trying to think of it.
3: Um, So earlier, we were told we
9: shouldn't be alone with children, right, or youth. In this case, I'm guessing the person would come to you alone and begin to confide in you. If it were me, I would ask for a second person to come in and sit in on the discussion, because uh,
10: I think you put yourself at a lot of risk if you take this
5: kind of information
10: alone. That's just a thought I have. wonder what you think.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. So a lot of our rooms have windows, um, so then anyone Parent or a volunteer walking by our staff that's here could walk by and see okay there's an adult alone with a child but they're they're keeping themselves clearly visible and sit yourself down kind of right in front of that window um, I we haven't um, looked into maybe the best way to do that I would think that if they are coming to me as a trusted individual and I say okay hold that thought I'm gonna run over here and I'm gonna grab Shannon too because, you know, um, because I'm worried or, or something something like that that moment might kind of be gone or as again they're coming to me as a trusted adult, not to say they don't trust Shannon, but maybe for whatever reason, they don't have that comfort level with her or for whatever reason they just they just thought okay I'm gonna grab onto this opportunity to to say something right now. I that's a good question I. If I can, I could look into that and say, hmm, what are the best practices for volunteers who are not trained to receive a child's disclosure? Because I hear what you're saying, and we want to also have um, kind of protection for ourselves and for the church. Um, that is what the kind of open doors and the windows satisfies. Um, but we also want to recognize that it is really hard for a kid to disclose abuse. It is really hard. You have no idea how hard that is. okay? And so if they are in that moment, sorry, I shouldn't say that maybe you don't have. I don't know you guys well enough to know that. Maybe, hopefully, most of you do not know how hard that is. And especially as a child to go to an adult and say, this is what's happening. As someone mentioned before, usually it will be a friend that will be aware of the situation first before an adult. Um, So I would be really careful. With that trust that that child is just is showing you and just honor that so I'm I don't want to say anything without having kind of thought and dug into it a little bit can we leave it at that that maybe that's something that 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 I can research into and see okay what are the best practices for that Because I would hate to kind of prescribe something as the steps to follow just on the seat of my pants and then and then find out later oh that's actually not the best
10: thing so just one second wendy has something to interject and then we'll go back or here in the sanctuary where you know there's obviously windows and there's people coming and going and but you're sitting alone together in a pew but you're in a public space we're not downstairs in a classroom by ourselves or you know that kind of thing so you're kind of public but you can still have this intimate conversation you know able to so that's that's how we get around like get around it. yeah yeah, not to get in a private room.
0: Okay. So I think we finished um have we done this? Yes. We're gonna so we've finished our disclosure. That was some great discussion, guys. All right. Um next. Oh one more
9: I just wanna make sure we cover it before we move on. Um in section five point three D, it talks about um injuries that are not serious enough to require non-urgent medical care, and that if you've tried calling the child or youth's parent or guardian, and you don't get any response, but it does warrant some type of medical care. um, It says, if further medical care is required before the end of time of the class, parents' guardians cannot be reached, then one adult volunteer should take that child or youth to receive medical attention and keep attempting to reach the parents' guardians. This brought up a question for us of as adult leaders are we actually permitted to leave this site with a child in our vehicle? Um, I don't think on the forms we have to disclose anything about insurance. There's always that piece of, it would have to be a female volunteer with a, like the a, a same gender, right? So maybe you can address
0: that. Very good point. Um, I don't have a copy of it with me, but on the child registration form, I believe there is consent to provide care as, as necessary. I can double check afterwards but when the parent is registering their child, that is something that they are agreeing to. If my kid falls and breaks his leg, he needs medical attention. Because I mean, yeah, it could just be a break or or, yeah, it's on there. So they are consenting to um, to that. Of course, then if you are at your maximum staffing ratio and then one of your volunteers leaves, that's not great either. So in that case, I would consider calling another Cornerstone volunteer saying, hey, I've got the situation. Can you step in real quick, just to be the volunteer for the last half of this, and I've got to take this kid into the emergency and keep calling the parent to say this is what happened. Leave a message, you know, so they so there's kind of you get that information to them as soon as possible. But I think that's that what we would do in that situation. Yes, Steve.
1: Logically, shouldn't it be if the person needs to go to emergency now, shouldn't that be nine one one? And if it isn't an emergency and the parents, like the classes aren't forever, if it's a cut that may need stitches in two hours, they're going to take two hours in the waiting room anyway. So if they wait for another half hour for the parent to come and pick them up, big deal. If it's broken, there's a bone sticking out or something like that. You don't want to drive them anyways. You're not a first responder. It's not your responsibility. Call 911. That's what the ambulance is for. So either the kid can wait for the parent to come and they can make the decision to drive their kid themselves or you call 911.
0: that is in there as as the steps is that if it is serious enough that it needs urgent medical attention call 911 that is in there it's just those situations where okay they need medical attention that's non-life-threatening non-urgent so you don't need to call 911 but it's beyond the basic first aid that we would have here available so yes certainly you call the parent in at that time and say hey this happened um but I, I guess if it is kind of nearing the end of the time, yeah, the, the kid could wait if they've you know, just got a busted lip or, or something, but there are some injuries that you don't know how serious they are because we're not medically, well, most of us here are not medically trained professionals. And so that's not, we don't want to take that responsibility for saying, I made the judgment call, this kid doesn't need to, he, he can wait two hours and then wait two hours in the emergency room. That's a total of four hours instead of two hours. Okay, or whatever, however long it takes to get them to drive over there. So that's just the situa- situation we're trying to avoid. Is yeah, if it's minor, just kind of every day, what would happen at home, and you wouldn't call or wouldn't take your child in, you still need to call and let the parents know. Some parents will be, oh yeah, okay, well that's too bad, but I th- if he's okay to stay, yeah, I'll come and pick him up at the end. Some parents are like, I'm coming in right now. I'm gonna come and get him. I want to know for myself, and I want to make that judgment call. So yeah, call 911 if it's um, if it's urgent and it needs to be and addressed immediately by the paramedics and taken right away to emergency. Um, If it's minor bumps, scrapes, little cuts, yeah, of course we can just address that here, call and notify the parents. If it's that kind of in between areas where where it's a little bit more gray, is if it's still urgent and you actually, you cannot properly assess fully how severe the actual impact of that injury or trauma might be. We just don't want you to be
10: in that position for making that call. Where is the contact information for parents to be available for leaders to call at a moment's notice? Because last year we had a a situation with a teen had a seizure. We called 911. We had to get all the kids out here and we supervised there. We were dealing with it here, waited, but we needed to call her parent to say, this is happening. We've called 911, please come. But we took like quite a while to find the number. Like, so he arrived just as kind of five minutes before the ambulance came, but like we need a we need to know as leaders, okay, this has happened or this is happening, what's the number of this parent or guardian? So where do we find that really fast?
0: So I know for midweek programs we have a sign in and the parents leave their phone number, leave their contact information. That should be there. As ministry coordinators, it is not written into this policy, but it is a good idea that you guys whenever you have an event that you have that information with you that you're not looking for church files or trying to look up on the computer or trying to rifle through the registration forms in a binder somewhere that i i don't even know where it is right now um so i would recommend if you are here running an event or you are off-site running an event you guys as your ministry coordinator who's with you or if the ministry coordinator is not physically present that night then he he or she hands that off to another volunteer and say, hey, can you be responsible for this? You should have your parents' the parents' contact information with you. So I can check with Stacy and see where the registration information is available, and we can certainly pass that out to all the volunteers and the ministry coordinators. But that onus is on the ministry coordinator or the volunteer that is responsible for that night or that activity or that program to say, here's all the contact information for all the parents and make sure that that if you have a new kid join partway through the year, make sure they fill in that registration form and make sure you have that contact information. So we're running short on time. Can it wait? Yeah, yeah, you bring that with you. Yeah, okay, so we are gonna keep going just so we can get through everything, and then I all this discussion and engagement is awesome, is great, and it's really helping us to dig into it and kind of figure out how to apply it and that's awesome but we do want to make sure we get through everything as well all right so we've gone through um, the disclosure so here's um, questioning a child sorry you guys have thrown me off a little bit here hey. okay so do not interview or ask specific questions but you can ask general, open-ended questions. Um, you can state your observations and then allow the child to elaborate if they can. Oh, hey, earlier today or earlier tonight, I, I just happened to see this. Um, can you tell me about it? I'm, I'm a little bit worried. Can you tell me about what that is? Not, not anything too pushy, not anything that's assuming too much, but just giving them an opportunity. To um, feel comfortable in giving you that information so be careful that you don't suggest words for the child to use um, validate the child's feelings express your concern please don't ask leading questions or questions that imply was the child's fault well why didn't you leave why did you stay why did you go back why didn't you tell me or why didn't you tell your parent okay don't state assumptions or project your own feelings Don't promise to not tell anyone. Okay, even if you're really, if you're trying to get gain the child's trust, don't make that promise because it's a promise you can't keep. Instead, you can say that you want to make sure that the child is safe. So that is a summary of our whole safe retraction plan. We've gone through all the main points. So now we are going to work through some case studies to see how we apply the safe church action plan policy and see what we would do so cornerstone is hosting its annual easter egg hunt all the kids from the church and community are excited there's lots of families from the community who don't regularly attend cornerstone and there's many new unfamiliar faces we make sure that many of the congregation are wearing our we are cornerstone t-shirts and that the children's church volunteers are wearing their name tags and there are some of the volunteers that are outside on the grounds As the kids gather around the person explaining the rules, someone does a quick head count. The kids start their egg hunting and many of the parents with the young kids follow them. A young child slips and falls in the mud and is upset and there's no parent around. You bring the child into the bathroom to help them get cleaned up. Someone opens the door and walks in to see that the child is partially undressed, standing in only their underwear as you help to get the mud off of their chest and legs. As you leave the washroom to help the child find their parents you hear some noises coming from downstairs So you glance down to the classroom and you see there are some older kids that you don't know that have locked themselves in with some younger kids and the younger kids are upset that the older kids aren't letting them leave so what is being done correctly in this scenario is there anything that's not being done correctly according to our safe church action plan what changes should have been made and are there any next steps that are necessary
7: Well, the child shouldn't be in the bathroom alone with an adult, or even two.
1: The right things are the t-shirts, the name tags, and the head count. After that, it seems like everything else fell apart.
9: It's a whole other issue of itself to me. Um, It doesn't really match paragraph one and two, but everything's all
0: wrong about that. So, everything's wrong. But we may have had that in, like, lower extents. Okay, yeah, you brought up some good points. There's a few things we're doing right and a whole lot of things that we're not doing right. So yeah, we're wearing our t-shirts and our name tags, we are doing a head count, and we're making sure there's some volunteers out around on the grounds. So that's great. What's not being done right? So yeah, you took the child into the washroom without first actively looking for the parent. You took or helped the child take off some of their clothes, and the washroom door was closed. So it's not an issue that there was an adult in the bathroom with the child. Because you're never going to, we're not always going to go in and clear the whole washroom out so that one child can go pee or wash their hands. That's not realistic. So what we're doing is, and of course, depending on the age of this child, but we said a young child, the child needs help. You're not going to stand back and say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't help you. We are going to help the child, but we just need to be smart about it. So we can go into the washroom, leave the door open, leave the child's clothes on, and maybe clear the mud off of their face and their arms so they're less upset and they're less kind of. All covered in muck and then you go out and and begin or continue hopefully looking for the child's parent and you were physically touching their body in places that were covered by their clothes even though it's innocent even though it's helpful even though it's maybe a nurturing thing in your instinct as a mother or grandmother or parent in this circumstance they're not your child this is not your home it's not appropriate also I know I know the second paragraph is completely separate but I wanted to put that out there. So, we have a situation where kids are locked in a room and they can't escape. In the situation, it just says older kids are bothering them and the young kids are upset. So, we have the situation where a kid is being held basically against their will. For changes, we should have looked for the parent first, um, just quickly wiped, wiped the child off, their face in their arms, and then gone back to find the parent and you left the door the washing door open for the downstairs the doors to those individual classrooms could have been closed and locked before we kind of opened our doors and had people coming in and going um, and no one noticed before you that these kids were upset and they were locked in so there was no one else around or there was no one kind of intentionally kind of keeping track of who's coming in and who's going out for next steps we could consider making it a policy classroom doors are to be closed and locked when they're not staffed so kids cannot go in there and be unsupervised and that no kid can be kind of cornered alone we kind of maybe offer training to our people again that okay in these kinds of situations it's really not appropriate for us to be doing x y and z if this happens let's remember to leave the door open and just don't touch the child in their body that is covered with her clothes And offer help but just do it in a safe way that follows our policy that's already here already laid out you could um, consider making a policy that when we have community events or we invite people in and there's kind of people coming in and going out we could have a couple people that are designated and it's their job to just be intentionally kind of wandering around inside the church building just checking in the different areas in the different classrooms and that will then prevent or at least minimize the potential that a child could be cornered alone because then they're vulnerable sure definitely yeah yeah as you know especially when they're that young yeah just say hey parents you know we're happy for you to join us Um, we've got a lot of kids here today so we'd appreciate if you just kind of keep an eye on your own kids that's great case number two the kids have just been dismissed from the Sunday service to begin their children's church You take your kinder-aged kid out to take him to his class. But as you come out, you notice that it seems like there's a lot of kids just waiting around. You send your child ahead of you to go into his class, walk down the hall to check in on the next classroom. Only the young helper is there. There's no teacher, and there's no visible sign of any lesson prep. You wait around a few minutes, and you see more families and more kids come, but no teacher. You and another parent wonder who the teacher may be, and what should you do if the teacher doesn't show up. You've taught children's church before, though not in a while, so you decide you could handle teaching the, the kids today. As you get the kids to sit down, you see that there's a new family standing. They look puzzled in the doorway. You invite their kids in, ask them their names, and welcome them to the class. The parents ask you if you're the teacher, and they have a few questions about children's church. You confess this is your first time teaching, and really you're only stepping in because there was no teacher that morning. They kind of look unsure as they slowly step back into the hall. You turn and notice you have three full kids, three full tables of kids. So you quickly get their attention with a short story and some games. As the class time ends, you spy a box of cookies in the corner. So you grab it, hand those out for a snack. One of the kids, one of the new kids eagerly grabs a cookie, puts it in his mouth to start eating. But his older brother grabs it and says, no, you can't have that. You're allergic. All right, in this scenario, what are we doing right? What is not being done right according to our Safe Church Action Plan? What should have been changed, and are there any next steps? Nathan?
6: Uh, The ratio is wrong. You have too many kids per volunteers. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to cancel the class if the teacher's not there and or if you don't have enough teachers. You, You shouldn't step in. Like, because that person probably didn't do their training if they haven't done this in a couple of years, because we've only been doing this for a couple of years. So that person's terrible.
9: I'm going to stick around and not just abandon all these kids. That's maybe one piece that was done right. It was well-intentioned. Another thing that was done
8: right was there was a volunteer in that classroom, even though I don't know what the age group was for that classroom, but there was a volunteer in the classroom already. And the
7: other thing is the new family should be made
8: aware that there's a
7: registration process, and um, whoever the parents are, that they
8: should find the, church, the ministry coordinator. Snack was given out before really looking at who had allergies.
2: Nobody asked if there was an allergy.
0: That's right, so there's not much going right and a whole lot going wrong. So the first thing, When you, in this story, you're coming out with your kinder-aged child, and then you sent him ahead of you into his class, and you didn't stop. You kept on walking by to check on the next classroom. So he's a kinder-aged kid. He needs to be signed in by a parent. That didn't happen. There's no sign of a floater checking on the classes, and they would have seen right away that we were missing um, a teacher. As Nathan said, a parent who is not a teacher decided to step in. Well, that sounds good. It's well-intentioned. You're right. They don't know the current policies and procedures for children's church they have they are not familiar with the curriculum they're not prepared to teach they might not have a current police records check on file for cornerstone and they might not have undergone our training and screening process they probably weren't wearing any cornerstone ID since they actually weren't the teacher for that day and as you said there's probably more than the one to nine ratio no one took attendance so the floater wasn't there if the floater had been there the floater could have stepped in to help satisfy that one to nine ratio but also more importantly the floater then could have gone to the ministry coordinator and found the ministry coordinator hopefully if she was here um, in the sanctuary and said we have a situation we're missing a teacher and then the ministry coordinator could step out and take a look and then the, the ministry coordinator has a decision to make she can step into that class she can and teach it and take it over or then she can decide to cancel the class and say we are, we are not appropriately staffed today we don't have adequate supervision we're not prepared maybe she's not able to step in or maybe it's happened a couple times already and we just need to say no we need to send the kids back to their parents care in the sanctuary yes april well the ministry coordinator is a send- So the question was, if the ministry coordinator wasn't available, can the Sunday school coordinator make that call? And the ministry coordinator is just our our terminology for the children's church coordinator. Yeah, just so I don't have to say children's church coordinator, youth coordinator. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the the question is... If you were there as a parent and you there's no teacher but you see someone who is a trained teacher on on the rotation you could ask if they are comfortable stepping in they could do that they could do that Um, I am the safe church action plan administrator as much as I can when I don't have other responsibilities I go out with the kids when when they um, are dismissed for kids for their children's church and I check on the classes just to see, hey, do you have, there's a teacher, do you have the helpers that you need? And I kind of wait a couple minutes to do a quick head count to see how many kids we have. And sometimes I step in. Sometimes I step in to teach a class, or sometimes I step in to be an extra volunteer if that's needed. But um, I just want to point out that this happened a number of times last year where we didn't have the helpers, or we didn't have a teacher, or we didn't... Um, have any teacher for or any helpers at all for other classes this happened a number of times and us as teachers and me in my role we kept stepping in and we kept stepping in, and it happened at least six times if not more last year and so that's when it gets to the point where okay we need to make a judgment call and say no and that's up to the ministry coordinator or if they're not there then that will be up to me um, to say okay kids Unfortunately, I guess our teacher isn't here today. I'm not sure what happened, but we're going to head back to the sanctuary and you can sit with your parents. And then you, as as the teacher, um, gave the kid something that he was allergic to. So that, of course, was not a good thing. Um, maybe that was because you didn't know or didn't think to ask the parent ahead of time when, hey, you're new. Welcome to Cornerstone. Have you been here before? Have you filled in our registration forms? I'm not, you know, this is my first time teaching your kids. Is there anything I need to know? Even if they have filled in a registration form, if it's your first time meeting those kids, you might not have seen that registration form to know that they have allergies. Just have that moment of face-to-face conversation say, hey, is there anything I need to know? And of course, in that older elementary age class, you could also ask the kid themselves. I don't know where Stacy has those so no I know she keeps saying it's online somewhere but I'm not sure but yeah that information about allergies and things like that that should be available to the teachers and the volunteers in the classroom because it does no good if it's up here in the office Ex- exactly exactly and that's that's a really good point yeah that's something that we don't have yet and this this is a great because I have lived and breathed this for two years and my brain is like yeah you know I know what's in here and I've done all the research, but then what's kind of real-life application, and that's, that's one of the benefits of having this kind of live training is that you guys come to us with all these situations, say, oh, I've seen this happen before, or what about this situation? And then it, it helps us to kind of work out those situations. So that's an excellent idea. Jolene was just saying that at, um, at the schools, they have in each of the classrooms posted a sign with the kids' names and any specific thing that they are allergic to. So you are not relying on third-hand knowledge from someone else you can see it yourself you have all the current updated information and um, that information is not inaccessible to you because it does no good if it's if it's up here or on the computer but you're downstairs teaching all right um, and then one thing for next steps is that the ministry coordinator could consider also coming out for the first few minutes of of the class time as all the kids are getting settled into their classes just to make sure that the classes are beginning smoothly and then they would be aware right away of any staffing shortages. So we're almost done. We have one more case study. Boys Club is having a glow in the dark bowling night. As one of the volunteers, you hand out the waiver forms the week before and you explain they have to be completed for the boys to participate. The night of the event, lots of kids lots of kids show up more than you expect. There are three cornerstone volunteers there and as someone is checking off the boys' names, A parent comes to you and says, hey, you're from Cornerstone Church, right? You're one of the supervisors for the boys' bowling night? As you're answering his questions, you see one of the Cornerstone boys run in excitedly. Afterwards, you call him over and ask him for his completed waiver form. He sheepishly says, oh, I forgot it, and my dad has already left. But he can stay, right? His parents have known you a long time, and you've spent a lot of time together. You feel badly for him and know that his parents must have filled in the form. It's probably just left behind in the car. So you decide to let him stay. And you go to check with one of the other volunteers. And they tell you, there are over 30 boys there tonight. You quickly divide into teams and begin a fun night of bowling. Partway through the last game, you notice one of the boys is missing. You quickly look around. You don't see him. You tell one of the volunteers, I'm going to go check in the washroom. And you get there. You find the boy and he looks like he's been roughed up and he's very upset. You check him over to see how badly he's hurt, and while he only has some scrapes and bruises, he's pretty shaken up. He tells you some older boys cornered him and stole his money. So what are we doing right? What's going on that's wrong? What changes should we make, or what are the next steps?
2: They counted how many boys there were and noticed that um, one of them was missing. You should never let him stay. Like you should have contacted his parents before, uh, or any, and make sure that he had his form
9: brought in as well.
4: Sent out waiver forms the week before, which is very good.
9: The form should have been due before the night of the bowling. It it also doesn't sound like there was any true sign-in system, so all of those extra boys should never have been allowed to stay. Their parents should have had to sign something, and on the spot that waiver should have been required.
6: The best thing they did was have a glow-in-the-dark bowling night. (laughs) And then lots of bad things happened from there. The ratio's wrong. That kid shouldn't have been able to get to the bathroom by themselves. Someone should have been responsible. And that's because the ratios were wrong.
0: Great. So you've got most of the points. So we're doing a head count. We're taking attendance as kids come in. You're easily identifiable because you're wearing your cornerstone shirts or your name tags or something. And you handed out the waivers beforehand and explained that we need those. So what's not right? You let the boy stay who did not have the completed waiver form. So you're right, there's potentially other boys that maybe showed up at the last minute without a waiver form. But in this situation, this boy, this one boy, you let him stay. So you made a personal judgment call. And that's what we're trying to avoid in 99% of the situations, hopefully, that we encounter. Our policy and our procedures, it's all going to be laid out for you. This is what we do in this situation. This is what you do in this situation. So if it's Nathan, or if it's Penny, or if it's Wendy, or if it's Steve, or if it's me, we would all react the same way because we know what the policy is and we're all gonna follow the policy. Because when we start to make exceptions and personal judgment calls, that's when uh, things happen that we're trying to prevent. That's when kids can become vulnerable. That's when We're not kind of really fully in control and really properly supervising the situation. So we could consider maybe bringing extra waiver forms, blank forms, and having them with us. Certainly call the parent right away and say, I'm sorry, we need this waiver in order for your child to stay. You didn't realize the boy was gone. He needed to ask you for permission to go. And so what you would do in that situation is you would tell the other volunteer, hey, I'm just taking this kid to the bathroom, walk with him pop your head in. You don't need to stay there. You're just being aware of the situation you're putting that child into. Let him use the bathroom. You wait outside, and then you would walk back together. And what would happen then in this situation is it might not have completely prevented everything from happening, but that boy would have known that you were outside. He could have called and yelled for you to help. You were kind of being intentional about supervising him, even though you were outside the room, and you could have stepped in and intervened and prevented him possibly from being hurt or hopefully even the whole situation from happening. All right. So what we would do is we would provide first aid as necessary to the boy. So if it just cuts and bruises and scrapes, then chances are that's something that a few band-aids um, would take care of. You could ask the boy how he feels, if he would like to stay and continue and finish the night, or if he would like to try to go home right away. It might not be obvious to you kind of how badly he's feeling still call the parents and let them know this happened unfortunately this is this is how the situation that your boy is in this is um, how he's feeling and you would let them know he would like to stay and continue if that's okay with you he seems okay or you would let them know okay he's really upset or he's he's really feeling hurt and he would like to be picked up right away if you're able to they might not be able to but at least you kind of relay that information to them as soon as you're able to then we refill we in that report of accident or injury And you call the ministry coordinator and you say, hey, we had this situation, just wanted you to know. I'm filling in this report. I'll give it to you as soon as possible. Okay? So we're just about done. That is it for the bulk of our training. Does anyone have any last one or two questions before we go? Yes, Nathan. Good question. Dan, do we have a first aid kit and where is it? Opposite the... uh It's like opposite the girls
2: washrooms so like right there by the whiteboard
8: so my question is um some places have the policy that if you open the first aid kit you have to fill out an incident report if it's like a paper cut and you have to get a band-aid out of the first aid kit do we have to fill out an incident report for that because some places need to
0: keep track of how many band-aids are in there and so forth I think for us, I, that's not written out in the policy, but I think we just kind of use common sense. I, I, I think I'm comfortable saying that. Just if you know, kids especially, they're gonna get bumps and scrapes and little cuts and things all the time. So little kind of minor abrasions or things that that needs a band aid. I don't think you need to fill in an incident report. If two kids are running around and they're horsing around and they bump heads, you really don't know exactly how serious that is. So even though it might seem to you like a minor thing, I would still fill in an incident report. They might not need anything more than ice on their head, still call their parents, let them know this happened, and the parent can make the call what they're comfortable with at that point. Um, For every kind of individual use of a Band-Aid, we don't need to fill in an incident report. But if it is something that happened or that um, a situation led to, or perhaps Kids weren't following the rules, and then they led to a situation where a, a child got hurt. I would say a little bit more than than what would require a band aid. I don't know. That's a fairly vague kind of. Their arm is hanging. Dan says that if their arm is hanging off, that is when you fill in an incident report. Okay. Is there any? We have time for one or two last questions, and then we do need to wrap up. Just We, we want to honor and respect your time. As Penny,
7: I'd like to make two suggestions with um, respect to Children's Church. If um, on the attendance sheets, because I know they're prepared and typed up, might want to put allergies right on them because there's such um, a large group of teachers circling through. I think that that would be really good. And the other thing is again with respect to all the groups. Since there are registration forms that have been prepared by the parents, I think that there should be copies with the ministry. So, and I don't know if that would be inappropriate, but a file folder in the green room for that group. a file folder in the nursery, a file folder in, um, you know what I mean? So that if there is contact to be made, I don't know. I know most of the children that are in the group that I'm teaching, but I don't necessarily know to put a a name to each of their parents, although I know the floaters usually do.
0: It's up to the ministry coordinators. It's their responsibility to make sure that they have the parents' names and contact information ready. But yeah, so for Children's Church, that would be a nursery. We should have that information easily, immediately accessible to our volunteers. we need to get a hold of this kids parents what are their names okay so that you know there's nothing kind of stopping that okay I'm just going to say a few more things and then we will be dismissed for today thank you all so much for joining us and participating and being actually such active participants that's awesome so um, if after today there are some things that you're unsure of or if you read through your materials and you're just something you don't understand fully please feel free to come and fire me at any point um could be kind of just a general what if question or it could be a specific i have the situation i'm not sure how we should have approached it if it's something that i can easily point out in the policy say yeah we have something that covers that right here i'll do that it might be something that we haven't thought of and i'll have to say hey i might have to get back to you on that and i'll kind of do whatever research I need to do, or talk with Dan and say, what about this situation? What do you think we should set as our standard? And then we'll get back to you. Um, So before we head out, we're going to make sure, please everyone check to make sure that you've signed in so we have a complete record of today's attendance. I also at the back have a list of people that I need a volunteer application form completed. So please take one of those with you. And also I have a list of people that I need uh, current police records check from please we need to get that done as soon as possible you can do it online um, if you reside within Ottawa um, if you need the cover letter from the church saying you're applying for a volunteer position you can just let me know and I will email that to you so you can upload that with your application if you reside outside of Ottawa you need to take that in and physically do it at your local police station And lastly, before you leave, we have an individual assessment tool. Dan, would you mind handing those out? It is just, they're straightforward questions, just to assess, do you have a good understanding of our Safe Church Action Plan, or can you at least find it in our policy if you need to? Thanks, everyone.